Good morning, church, once again, uh, in person, online. Uh, so grateful to be opening God's word with you. Uh, last week, John had an excellent message for us from Luke 14. Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at one of the most important feasts in all of Scripture. Love for you to have that passage open in front of you. You know, for some time, uh, famous preachers have been asked this question. And the question is this, if you only had one sermon to preach, if you could only preach one sermon, what would it be? Now, I'm not a famous preacher, right? Only in my own mind, VRBC, am I a famous preacher, just kidding. But, but if I only had one sermon, or maybe one passage to preach one sermon on, it would be today's passage. And if you longtime church friends are asking me why it's taken 22 years to preach it, well, don't worry about it, okay? Just don't worry about it. No, I'm slow, I guess, is the best answer to that question. But, but I, I believe that this, this passage is like a, a, I mean, it is, man, it is solid meat, right? It is an eight-ounce pepper-encrusted filet mignon with butter on it. Uh, it is the heart of what the gospel is all about. It speaks with, with great realism about our struggles in this life, and it speaks with great hope about God's grace. There's something in this passage for every one of us today. Now, I'm gonna read a relatively small portion of this long chapter of Luke 15, and so just to kind of orient you, I wanna give you just a quick flyover. What we're going to find is that there's a, a triggering event at the very beginning of Luke 15, and then three stories that Jesus tells in response to that triggering event. And all three stories, are, the stories are different, but they all have these, this one theme in common, and that is that, that they're stories about things that were lost and have become found. Now, what was the trigger? Well, uh, the trigger was a feast, believe it or not. Jesus was, uh, was welcoming uh, people that religious folk tended to look down on, like tax collectors and sinners, and, and, and the, his religious critics were muttering about him. They were grumbling about him. They were saying, this man uh, eats with, uh, with tax collectors. He eats with, with sinners. He welcomes them into his presence. And so Jesus, in response, decided to tell uh, this story, or rather these three stories, not just to point out the warped perspective of his religious critics, but also to point, I think, to the heart of his mission as Savior and as Lord. And so he tells the story first about a shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. One gets away, and he, he leaves the 99 to go search for the one. When he finds that one, he's so excited. He like puts that lost sheep on his shoulders, and he comes back, and he calls his neighbors and friends. So basically, we need to have a party because my one lost sheep has been found. And then he tells a story about a woman who has 10 coins, and she loses one. She, can you imagine like losing 10% of your wealth uh, kind of overnight. And uh, she's frantic, she tears the house apart looking for the coin. When she finds it, what does she do? She says, hey everybody, come have a party with me. I found my lost coin. And then he tells a third story. And this one is a lot longer. Uh, and that's the one that we wanna uh, focus on today. And, and, and this story is not about sheep, it's not about coins, it's about people 
that are lost. Actually, I believe it's about two people that are lost, two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. And I'm only going to have time in this sermon to focus on the younger brother. Uh, But just to orient you, the older brother is one of those goody-two-shoes types, very morally correct and never tires of letting you know how morally correct he is. And like a lot of younger brothers who are younger brothers to the goody-two-shoes, he kind of looks at his older brother and says, well, I'm not going that way. Uh, I can never do that. I don't want to do that. And uh, he basically says, I'm going to follow my own path. And as he does, this younger brother makes a series of terrible decisions. Beginning with perhaps the biggest one of all, he tells his father that he wants a share of the inheritance right now. I don't want to wait till you die, Dad. I want all the money you're going to give me one day right now. Basically, in our culture, but I think especially in that culture, it was like saying to your dad, you're dead to me. I only care about what you can give me. I don't care about you. He leaves the family farm. He goes off in search of life in the far country, life in the big city. He's got a wad of cash. And all that cash helps him acquire some wonderful friends who surround him to help him spend his money. And they're just partying and and living the dream. Uh, And when the money's gone, uh, ironically enough, the friends scram and the dream dies. And the money's gone. I mean, it's all gone. So he has to find work. And, and imagine the, 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 the prominent son of a Jewish farmer. Right? And, the, and, and the only place he can find work is the most humiliating place of all for a Jewish son. And that is in a definitely not kosher pig farm. And that's where we pick up the story. You were wondering, is Larry ever going to read the passage to us? Here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 16 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. He, the younger son, longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, I will arise and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. God bless the reading of his word. If I had... If I had one sermon to preach, it'd be this one. Why? Because I think this text outlines the plot of what true Christianity is all about. Now, why is that so important? Well, that's always important. But I feel a special urgency uh, in the fall of 2021 about this passage because I think we are living in a time when so many people are losing the plot line of the gospel. 
We are living in an era of deconstruction. Do you know that term, deconstruction? Are you familiar with it? Tens of thousands of people in North America are leaving their Christian faith or their understanding of the Christian faith, or maybe not their faith, but their church. Now, some do it quietly. I'm sure most, the overwhelming majority, leave quietly. But some are leaving noisily, um, uh, at least on social media. Uh, they're leaving uh, with, uh, they're announcing their departures from Christianity, and they're doing so with uh, hashtags like exvangelical instead of evangelical, or hashtags like empty the pews. Their ranks include former pastors, uh, podcasters, Christian musicians. Why are they leaving? I don't think there's any single one reason why people leave. I mean, first of all, I mean, for 20 centuries of Christian history, people have left, right? Uh, uh, I believe that life is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 says that. Uh, we have a spiritual enemy, Satan, who is constantly sowing seeds of doubt and, and seeds of cynicism and seeds of disillusionment. So there's always that going on. But unfortunately, I think many people are leaving because they've been presented in word or in deed with a warped version of the Christian faith. I think many people are leaving because they've been presented with a Jesus plus equation and the plus part overshadows the Jesus part. They've been taught, you know, if you wanna be a true Christian, then you need to believe in Jesus plus my particular view of the origin of the universe, or you need to believe in Jesus plus my particular brand of politics, left or, or right, or somewhere in between. And, and I think that's a big reason why people are, are leaving. Uh, many young people, so many young people are leaving. I'm gonna guess that many of you have close family members who fall into this category, maybe siblings or cousins, maybe children or grandchildren. And I'm gonna guess even that some of you here, maybe some of you who are watching online, I mean, you haven't left, obviously, but maybe you've got a toe or two pointed out the door. You've become disillusioned with Christians. I wonder if perhaps a, a bigger reason why so many people are emptying the pews is because they have experienced the exact opposite of what the New Testament said says should be our distinguishing characteristics as Christians. You know what should be our distinguishing characteristics as Christians? What do you think it is? Love, love. Jesus was asked to summarize all of the Hebrew scriptures. What, if you could summarize the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures, what would it be? And he said, love, love God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like you love Yourself, on the night before Jesus died, Maundy Thursday before Good Friday, what did he do? Right? He washed his disciples' feet before he gave his life the next day for the world. And what did he say to them in John 13, verse 35? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, that, you're true, that you truly belong to me, that you're truly following me. And what is it? If you love one another love, right? But unfortunately, so many former church attenders have dealt with that pastor who preached like an angel but led like a mob boss. 
They've dealt with that staff member or Christian leader who, who preached or taught a good game but was morally broken, sexually broken. Too many people have encountered Christians and the first thought that comes to mind when they think of their Christian family member, aunt or uncle or grandparent or neighbor is not love, right? It's they're proud, they're judgmental, they're bitter, they're pharisaical, they're greedy, they're, they're hypocritical. They're the opposite of what Jesus is and what Jesus teaches. And sadly, so many people have seen their faith deconstruct. Now, it's probably not a bad thing for a warped faith to deconstruct. Who needs a warped faith, right? But my biggest prayer is that people will reconstruct their faith around true Christianity, around the gospel. My biggest prayer is that people will recover the plot. Those who've lost the plot will recover the plot. And I think the heart of the plot line of the gospel is in the heart of Luke 15. And I want to just talk about two powerful truths at the heart of the gospel. They're they're so important. The first one is the tragedy of lostness. The tragedy of lostness. I want to pick up the story where we uh, last left off before I read the text to you. The younger brother uh, left his father. He set out for the far country, squandered all of his money, and then lost all of his friends. And in a time of economic hardship, in a time of famine, he gets a job, but the job doesn't even pay enough to buy groceries. And that's when this younger son begins to confront one of the most painful and yet important aspects of coming to grips with what it means to be lost or far from home. And the first aspect of that is the loss of a dream. The loss of a dream. I think one of the ways we discover that we are spiritually lost is when the dream that we staked our lives on falls apart. And the younger son staked his life on the far country. He took all that daddy gave him and he put it all on the far country, didn't he? He blew up his relationship with his father. He he cratered his reputation in that community. He spent every last cent on a dream that was over before he knew it. Friends, he fell in love with the far country, but I want you to hear this. He fell in love with the far country, but guess what? The far country did not love him back, okay? He loved the dream. The dream did not love him. And so in verse 16, we begin to feel his desperation, don't we? The younger son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Here's just a little uh, uh, important theological insight, and that is when you're hungry for Purina pig chow, you're in a bad place. I just want you to write that down. I think that's important to note. While the younger son was used to living in a place in Israel where It was part of the religious culture to give alms to the poor, not so much in the far country, not so much in Gentile country at that time. The friends that he bought with his money are gone. The people who he now works for care more about the pigs than him. Now this is obviously, Jesus was a master storyteller in in his parables. It's stark, it's dramatic, it's meant to make a powerful 
point. But I wonder, maybe in a less dramatic fashion, I wonder how many of us have experienced something similar. Like the younger brother, we thought we knew better, right? And we burned our bridges to chase a person, to chase a relationship, to chase a job, to chase an adventure to chase what sounded like fun at the time. And it was fun for a desperately short amount of time until we broke up or flunked out or got fired or prayed that we might get fired. We loved the dream. The dream did not love us back. And now we are adrift. We're far from home. We're so far from anything approximating peace and joy and home. That is the tragedy of lostness. It's the loss of a dream, but there's something more involved. It's also the loss of an identity. In verse 17, the younger son has a terrible realization. First of all, he realizes that the workers his father employs back home regularly eat much better than he does. They have food and bread to spare. Literally, they have food in abundance. They have more food than they can eat. He has less food than he needs. In other words, the younger son can see death by starvation in the not too distant future. And so verse 17 says he came to his senses. Maybe your translation says he came to himself. Now commentators are divided on this. Um, Was this true repentance? He came to his senses? Or was this something closer to a business decision? We don't know, do we? Uh, But regardless, he decides to head back home, or what used to be home, and to tell his father, or who used to be his father, of his sin, as he mentions it in verse 18, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and also of his understanding that he's lost his old status. And so I picture him borrowing a big pen and and an index card, and he's writing out this little speech, and the speech includes this key line in verse 19 about the loss of identity. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Imagine having this conversation with a parent. You know, I, I'm not worthy. <laughs> I don't know, Dad, you may have, while I was gone, you may have gone down to the courthouse and, and legally disowned me. I don't know. I don't know what's going on at home. I, I just know that I'm morally unfit to be called your son. And if you have any just remaining pity in your heart for me, could you give me a job? Could I work with your hired servants? Could I work with a day? Laborers, Can you imagine the agony of writing out that speech? Can you imagine the agony of preparing to deliver it? Can you imagine the agony of anticipation? What's going to happen? Am I going to have to bang on the front door? Will daddy open the door? If he does, what will he say? Friends, I think a big part of lostness is just this wondering where things stand with God. Now, I know that not all people who are lost believe in God, but I bet many, I would even bet that most do. I I happen to think most people look at this incredible world that we live in and say to themselves, this is not all one series of accidents, you know? there's, There's somebody behind all this. The question is, how do things stand between me and that somebody, what does he think of me? There's a story in the Old Testament about an estranged father and son. 
Uh, it's in the book of 2 Samuel, and it will break your heart. Uh, you've uh, probably heard of King David. He was an incredible leader, military leader, tremendous songwriter. On his best days, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was a terrible father. And uh, he had a, a kind of prodigal son of his own. His name was Absalom. And for a number of dark reasons, Absalom and his father were estranged from one another. Now, David had an advisor, a chief advisor named Joab. And Joab wanted to try to bring about a reconciliation between father and son. And so he, he, he brought Absalom to David's palace. But David says to Joab, I don't want to see Absalom's face. 2 Samuel 14. And do you know for two years... David and Absalom, father and son, lived in the same city but never saw one another. And Absalom was so angry about it that he wanted to get his dad's attention, and he did so by setting Joab's field on fire. And, uh, and that got Joab's attention, and he got David's attention, and David finally agreed to meet with Absalom, and David even kissed him, but it was too late. There was a father wound in Absalom's heart that would not go away. And Absalom led a revolt against his dad. And things ended horribly. And you just wonder, like, what if David had really embraced Absalom? Not a fake kiss, right? But true forgiveness and, and deep affection. What would have happened in Absalom's heart if his father had truly welcomed him home? Friends, at the heart of the gospel is a sad and true story of what it's like for every one of us to be lost, what it's like when our dreams don't pan out, what happens when we lose our identity, when our worth plummets, when we feel alienated from the Father of all creation. You can't tell the gospel story without telling that hard part of it, but there's a deeper part, and it's not a tragedy. <laughs> it's amazing good news. Because to go along with the tragedy of lostness, there's the joy of foundness. I mean, if you can relate it all to the younger son, I don't want you to miss verse 20. Because in verse 20, we have sort of a split camera. For the most part, during the story, the camera's been wholly focused on the younger boy. But now there's a split screen. And while on one screen we see the younger son kind of doing that pivot and turning around and walking toward home, I want you to notice what his father is doing in the other screen. Verse 20 says, but while he was still, while the boy was still a long way off, his father saw him. Hmm, how did he see him? Was he looking for him? Was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Wowza. <laughs> the father is not surprised by an unexpected knock on the door. No. He's had his eyes peeled on that farm to market road ever since his boy left. He's been looking, he's been waiting, he's been praying. And when he sees the boy, what does he say? Does he? find his own Joab, his chief advisor, and say, look, the boy can work on the farm if he wants to, but I don't want to see his face. Does he say, bring him to me, I'll give him a quick, cold kiss, but then I want him to leave? No. His heart fills up with compassion, and that compassion leads an old man to run in the most undignified way. 
And I'm assuming this younger son, out of reverence, is falling to his knees in front of his dad, but his dad won't let him. His dad is pulling him up to his feet and wrapping his arm around him and slobbering all over him and, and kissing him. And this had to have thrown the younger son off his game, right? He's got his little index card. He's got his speech to read. He, he tries to find his speech. He tries to read it. He starts to make his little speech about no longer being your son, but I still need a job. His father cuts him off. Did you notice that? His father doesn't let him finish the speech. Get this. The younger son thought the dream was over. He thought his identity was squandered. He thought he would have to get used to some cheap knockoff version of all his original hopes and dreams for life. But instead of experiencing a slightly less miserable nightmare, what happens? The father welcomes him to a dream he could never have imagined. A welcome home feast. And not just a new dream, but a new identity. Verse 22, there's an urgency in the father's voice. He says in Greek, taku, quick quick. He calls for his servants. He wants three things. He wants a new robe, not just an old threadbare robe in the back of the closet, but a new robe, a head-to-toe regal kind of robe, a, a robe worn by kings. Then he asks for a ring, which would be symbolic of the son's authority, the authority of the father given to the son, the inheritance of the father given to the son. And then I've always loved this painting by Rembrandt, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I don't know if you can see it here, but uh, do you see how his shoes are falling off? You know, his, his shoes are worn out. The father says, bring him, bring him shoes. Right? He's not a slave. He's my son. And that's not all. You know, you had your cattle that ate hay like most of the cows, but then you had those special calves that, that they were fed wheat. They were the fatted calf. One commentator says a slaughtered calf could feed anywhere from 35 to 75 people. Kill the, 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 the wheat calf. Kill the fattened calf. We're having a party for the community. Dozens of people invited the son who wondered if he'd be let back on daddy's ranch is now going to sit at the head table of a feast given in his honor. How scandalous! <laughs> How wonderful! And if you ask the father why, here's what he will say, verse 24, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. How can we not celebrate? Now, friends, there's so much more to this story. So much more. But I think we probably have more than enough to reflect on today. What is the gospel? This is the gospel. What is the heart of what we believe? This is the heart of what we believe. This is the gospel. The bitter truth that we on our own cannot find our way in life. That we will follow inevitably our selfish dreams and we will get lost and our dreams will not love us back. But every day, friends, a father stands out on the front porch looking for you and me. And the moment we pivot, the moment we turn, he comes running. I mean, if you were expecting God to say to you, well, okay, I guess you can come back home. But I will never forget what you did to me. If you expected God to say, okay, you can come back home, but not as my child anymore. You lost that. That's gone. If 
you expected God to say that, you're wrong. You're wrong. Jesus says it. Your God is full of compassion for you in Christ. He runs with undignified humility in your direction. And before you can even finish your confession to him, he's ordering that you be clothed with his righteousness, that you be fitted with his inheritance, that that a banquet be given in your honor. That's the gospel. The gospel is not some thin religious jam spread over an ideology. That's the gospel. The gospel is not some holy perch to look down on others. The gospel is, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And guess what, friends? Gospel people get it. They don't look down on others because they know how lost they are and how lost they would be without Jesus. Gospel people are not arrogant. They're not hypocritical. They're filled with a heavenly father's compassion for everybody who's lost their way. Gospel people don't mind humbling themselves. Gospel people don't mind making fools of themselves to welcome anybody and everybody to the feast that the lamb of God, the sacrificed lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has provided. That is the gospel. And we're gospel people And we can't explain it, but God rescued us from the far country. He treated us not like the failures we were, but like deeply loved children. And he wants us to keep an eye out as well for anybody who makes the slightest pivot toward home. And I just have to think that maybe if we did, we'd see a whole lot less deconstructing going on. We'd see a whole lot more reconstructing a lost faith in the Father who welcomes us home. I'm close to being done, but I want to share a story with you. Some of you have heard it. I, uh, my college roommate, uh, we were both preacher boys. He was teaching college Sunday school, and he wanted that, me to help him out kind of for a little, uh, it would be kind of like a religious episode of punk, I guess. But, but uh, he, he had this idea. He was actually reading, I think, from Luke 14 and the, the chapter John was in last week about like not just like giving preferential treatment to the people you like and excluding the other people, but actually welcoming those who are kind of poor and lost or whatever. And, and so it was his idea that while he was reading this passage at college Sunday school, uh, that I would come in, uh, but in a disguise. Uh, and so there we were in the sanctuary of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco. And, um, uh, and I walk in um, wearing a ball cap and uh, a white T-shirt with a purple Fonzie iron-on transfer and uh, worn jeans and sandals and uh, these mirrored sunglasses that I'd gotten at a gas station. And this, by the way, was in an era where college students wore fancy suits and dresses to church. And so, uh, you know, I looked very much out of place in this college Sunday school class. And, and so we had it all planned out. While my roommate was reading that scripture from Luke 14, I walked down the center aisle of the sanctuary and walked right to the front. And my roommate had it planned out. Right after he read those words, he kind of looked at me as if he didn't know me. And he said, can I help you? And I looked up at him and I said, no, I don't think you can. And I turned around and walked out. Man, we were trying to guilt people, weren't we? We were trying to make them feel so terrible. Well, as I'm walking out, 
I, I, the, the bit is over, the play is done, and, and I'm going to go. I actually have my suit uh, in the men's room, and I was going to change into my church clothes and come on back, you know. And, and, uh, and so I get to the lobby, and I hear some footsteps behind me, and this guy's calling me, and he says, hey, hey, come back. And, and I turn around, and it's like a, one of the college students, and, I, and I'm trying to say, oh, you know, and I start to think, he goes, no, 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 well, come back in, man. I want you to sit by me. So glad you're here. Yeah, 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 come, I'm sitting down front come sit next to me and I had to say oh man I'm so sorry my roommate and da 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 and he felt like such a fool (laughs) but he shouldn't have because he gets the gospel (laughs) he's a gospel person we are gospel people We know how much it costs the Father to invite us to the feast. We know how much it costs the Father's Son to invite us to the feast. And we'll run anywhere, right? We'll invite anybody to sit next to us at the Father's table because we once were lost and now we are found. We're blind, but now we see. Pray with me. Lord, I pray for every person hearing this message right now, in person, online, tape delay, Lord, everyone, all of us in our heart of hearts know what it is like to wonder, Lord. We know what it's like to value our own selfish dreams above you. Lord, and we live in a time where sadly so many people are losing the plot. And sometimes it's because of Christians like me who are not living the plot. Lord, have mercy. Lord, imprint your gospel truth on our minds and hearts today, Lord. Imprint the gospel. However it hits us, Lord, imprint the gospel. And if we're far from you, Lord, give us the strength to pivot. And Lord, if we see someone pivoting, Give us the courage to run toward them as you run toward them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We wanted you to be able to sit with this image uh, so incredible of the Father running toward you. And so the band's going to sing this song that captures this truth. And I hope you'll use this song as an opportunity of worship and gratitude Uh, and commitment, a chance to say wow, and thanks, and health, and all that. Listen. Listen.